This morning we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Let's pray once again and ask God's for help. Father, we thank you for giving us your holy, inspired, and errant, life-giving word. Lord, we confess that we are in great need of help this morning. Please send your spirit now. Lord, give us the gift of understanding. Peel back the blinders. Help us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ as the word is preached. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Charles went from relative obscurity to great notoriety in a short time. His name was unfamiliar to those living in Boston in the 1920s, but like a shooting star, this millionaire burst onto the local scene. Charles made his millions by encouraging others to invest their money with him. He promised an astonishing 50% interest on investments in 45 days and 100% interest on investments in 90 days. Sounds too good to be true. In just a few months, 40,000 people handed him nearly $15 million. Some even mortgaged their homes and through their life savings to invest their money with Charles. In August of that year, Charles Ponzi was arrested and charged with multiple counts of fraud and larceny. The whole thing was a scam. Since then, a Ponzi scheme is synonymous with a fraudulent investment. Ponzi seemed like a nice guy. He seemed like he knew what he was doing. He seemed like he had financial expertise. He seemed like he wanted to help people just make more money. But appearances can be very deceiving. His Ponzi scheme destroyed the lives of thousands of people. Sometimes people are not what they seem to be. And this brings us to the end of John 6. The end of John 6, we realize that someone can walk like a disciple, talk like a disciple, act like a disciple, but not be a true disciple. They can be deceived about their own identity. Now, why does it matter whether or not someone is a true or false disciple? Nothing else really matters more because true disciples have their sins forgiven, go to heaven for all eternity, and know the triune God. But false disciples spend all eternity separated from God's good, benevolent presence. Which raises the obvious question, which one are you this morning? A true disciple or a false disciple? Now keep in mind that we can all be deceived about even our own selves in this regard. Well, to help us answer that question, which one are you, we're going to look at two groups in this passage. There are the false disciples and the true disciples. First are the false disciples. Well, what are the marks of a false disciple? To begin with, false disciples are eventually offended. Look with me at verse 60 of chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, this, word, this verse uses the word disciple at its most elementary level. A disciple is anyone who follows Jesus for a season. 
In the crowd, many people are identified as disciples, but only true disciples persevere till the end. A true disciple is a Christian. There are not two categories of Christians, disciple, Christians, and Christians. All Christians are true disciples, but some people can seem like disciples for at least a brief season. The disciples say to Jesus, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, that word hard is the adjective scleros. It does not mean hard to understand. It means offensive, off-putting, or disturbing. Now, what the world were these disciples offended about in the context of John 6? Well, many things, but most recently Jesus has said, if you want eternal life, all you have to do is eat my flesh and drink my blood, which I covered last week. Now, that is a little hard to swallow, no pun intended. It was a hard saying. Back to our verses, verse 60 to 62. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now this ascending language is a veiled reference to the offense of the cross. How can I say that? Because Christ will only ascend to the Father after he has died on the cross. And Jesus knows the message of the cross is very offensive to the human mind. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jesus Christ is saying, if you were offended by what I just said about my flesh and body, <laughs> wait a little bit, I'm going to be even more offensive. I'm going to die on the cross, and the cross indicates to all of humanity that our sins were so bad the Son of God had to be murdered on a cross in our place for us to be forgiven, which means that all of us deserve crucifixion. Furthermore, the cross tells us that none of us in our own power can save ourselves. Something dramatic has to happen. God has to send his own Son to suffer and die for us. The word of the cross is very offensive, far more offensive than Christ talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And the word of the cross is still offensive to 21st century humanity. Here's the point. The false disciples were offended by Christ's teaching. As a result, many eventually desert him. And not much has changed over the years. Many disciples follow Christ for a while until they find out what Christ really believes or teaches. They think, oh, Christ demands that I forgive people 70 times 7, but my spouse has really wounded me. My coworker has really wounded me. Yes, Christ demands his disciples forgive. Oh, Christ is saying that he demands absolute submission to his will? There's things I like to do that he doesn't want me to do. Oh, Christ is saying 
that he's the only way to God? Every other way leads to perdition and destruction? No thanks. Or, oh, Jesus Christ seems to teach that hell is real and lasts forever. No thanks. Or, oh, Jesus Christ teaches that sex outside the context of heterosexual monogamous marriage is wrong? Oh, no thanks. I'm leaving. People are still offended by Christ. They follow him for a while, and they find out what he really believes, and they leave. And here's the scary thing. People in this particular situation can be churchgoers who read their Bibles and pray and give away their money. I have known people over the decades who look just like disciples involved in church leadership, memorizing the Bible, making disciples, but eventually they stumble on a teaching of Christ and they leave. I'm thinking right now of two names, friends of mine that sure seem like disciples for decades and eventually choked on the teaching of Jesus. Here's the question for all of us. Is there anything in the Bible that you're embarrassed of or that offends you? Is there anything that Jesus teaches that embarrasses you or offends you? If so, you may not be a true disciple. False disciples want to pick and choose what they decide to believe and obey. But you can't pick and choose with Jesus. You can't nibble on him, try him on for size, flirt with him, dabble with him. If you do, you don't know who you're dealing with. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he demands from everyone, everywhere, absolute submission. And by the way, he offers eternal life. It's worth it. But you can't play games with Jesus, and you can't pick and choose with Jesus. If so, you could be a false disciple. False disciples eventually are offended. Why? Because false disciples are spiritually blind. They're eventually offended because they're spiritually blind. Look with me at John 6, 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus says to the false disciples, the reason you're offended by what I'm saying is because you are still in the flesh. The Spirit of God has not come into you and given you understanding of what I'm saying to you. Then he goes on to say in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus refers again to a controversial subject that he dealt with a few verses ago in John 6. He basically says this, the reason why you're blind spiritually is because the Father has not drawn you savingly to himself. That's why you're blind. He says you cannot, has to do with ability, you cannot come to the Father unless he draws you because 
You're blind. Now, three summers ago, my family went to Montana, and we spent some time in the Lewis and Clark Caverns. How many of you have been to the Lewis and Clark Caverns in Montana? Quite a few of you have. The Lewis and Clark Caverns are a phenomenal natural feature. Um, there's this mountain range in Montana, lots of rocks, and you go into this incredible natural cave system that I think goes on for miles underground. If you're claustrophobic, don't do it. You'll be terrified. But when you walk into these caves for about 100 yards and you're away from the door, it is absolute darkness. You can't see anything. There's walls, there's stairs, there's railings, but you can't see any of that because it is so dark. You are literally and functionally blind in that environment until someone turns a flashlight on and then instantly you have sight. Before conversion, all of us are spiritually blind. It's like we're stuck in the Lewis and Clark Caverns, spiritually speaking. We cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ until God in his mercy shines the flashlight on us and begins to draw us to himself. False disciples may understand all the facts of the gospel. They can recite them back to you. But until God the Father sends the Spirit and gives us illumination, we're not going to believe those facts, and they're not going to transform us. False disciples are eventually offended because false disciples are spiritually blind. As a result, false disciples eventually leave. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of these early disciples that followed Jesus proved in this moment to be false disciples. When he starts talking about hard things, they are offended and they leave, never to return. This implies that several disciples in John 6 were following Jesus for the wrong reasons. For instance, some people followed Jesus because the crowds followed Jesus. Remember, there were huge crowds following him around. Palestine. Mob psychology is incredibly effective. This is known as the power of the crowd. When I was a senior at WSU, it was late Saturday evening in the spring, and we heard this incredible noise outside of our fraternity. And what started as a small party, I know, surprise, surprise, the party at Wazoo, this small party of several hundred grew to a party of several thousand in the Greek system at WSU. It was a mob. People came from all over campus to be a part of this mob. They were lighting cars on fire, uh, breaking things. It made national news. Now, why in the world do people light cars on fire? Because of mob psychology. Everyone else is doing it, why don't I do it? Mob psychology, the power of the crowd, is very effective, and it works both positively and negatively. Some of these people were following Jesus because the crowd was following Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning because your friends are Christians, or your family is Christian, or maybe going to church is appropriate for your cultural context. Or maybe you only go to church because you want a sense of belonging. Or you like being with those nice Christian people. 
you were following Christ for the wrong reasons. Some people followed Jesus because he provided bread. These people thought, if I follow Jesus, he can feed me. Jesus was like a walking, talking food dispensary and hospital, meeting all kinds of practical and physical needs. And in this situation, Jesus becomes merely a means to an end. I remember, again, when I was at WSU, I was involved in a ministry. It was a great ministry. It was a very sincere ministry. And one of the ways they tried to influence non-Christians was giving these talks on relationships. We'd go into fraternities and sororities and dorms uh, under the guise of, we want to help you have better relationships with those around you. So the person would go in and talk about relational principles. At the end, the, the, the speaker would say, now the only way to be really skilled in these relational principles is by having a firm spiritual base. And Jesus Christ is the best firm spiritual base to provide these relational principles. Which is true, but what's happening? <laughs> Jesus Christ is becoming a means to an end. I want to use Jesus to be better at relationships so people will like me and be my friend. He's merely become a dispenser of good things. Time Magazine ran a cover story with this headline. Does God want you to be rich? The story explains that three of the four biggest churches in America right now are prosperity churches. And the prosperity gospel teaches that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and prosperous. God becomes merely a means to an end. He's there to give us bread and relational skills and money. If you're following Christ for those reasons, you're following him for the wrong reasons. Some follow Jesus because they want fire insurance. They don't like the feeling of guilt. They know they're sinners. They don't like the idea of going to hell. So they trust Jesus because they want fire insurance, but they want nothing to do with submitting to Jesus. They don't want relationship with him. They just want the fire insurance. If that's you, you're following Christ for the wrong reasons. Some follow Christ because they like being right. They love to study doctrine. They love a church that has more sound doctrine than everyone else. We are the insiders. We figured out these doctrines nobody else has. We're the right ones. These folks are following Christ for the wrong reasons. Now, here's the irony. If you follow Jesus, he will give you a sense of community. He will provide for you. He'll give you fire insurance. And you will be right about the most important things in life. But we shouldn't follow Jesus first and foremost for these reasons. We must come to Christ because he's the most valuable treasure in the universe. That's why we should follow Jesus. This raises the obvious question. Why this morning are you here? Why are you following Jesus? Is it because of friends, family? You want the fire insurance? You want to please the crowds? Why are you following Jesus? If it's for those reasons, when times get tough, you will leave him, proving yourself to be a false disciple. Maybe you are following him for the wrong reasons. If so, what should you do? Become a true disciple. 
which leads to the second point. First, false disciples. Second, true disciples. What are the marks of a true disciple? Several things. True disciples understand the exclusivity of Jesus. Look at John 6, 67 with me and following. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter says, Lord, to whom else in the Greek shall we go? Where else should we go to find life? Said another way, Lord, there are no other good alternatives to you. You're it. Well, is that true, Dave? What are the alternatives to Jesus Christ? Well, you can look to yourself. You can try to work really, really hard to be religious and spiritual, but you can never, ever do enough good things to earn eternal life. You can look to money, but you can never, ever, ever earn enough money to satisfy your soul. You can look to success, but we can never, ever achieve enough success to satisfy our souls. What about health and fitness? Eventually, your body will break down and age and decay. How about other religions? Their truth claims don't hold a candle to the truth claims of Jesus Christ. We can look back longingly on our way of life before Jesus. But how did that turn out for you? Most of us can say that life before Christ was empty and meaningless and broken. You can look to a more gentler, kinder, less judgmental form of Christianity. But then, you've left Christianity. Jerry Gresham Machen, the famous Presbyterian scholar of the 20th century, wrote a book in the 20s with the title, Christianity and Liberalism. They're two different things. You can be a Christian or a liberal Protestant, but you can't be both. If you forsake the hard edges of Jesus, you've forsaken Jesus. And what you're doing is no longer biblical Christianity. I'd be willing to bet that in a group this size, many of you, if not all of you, have wondered at some point in your life, should I leave Christ? Following him is hard. <laughs> it leads to persecution. It requires self-discipline. It requires saying no to the lust of the flesh. It would be much easier to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or an agnostic or an atheist. At some point, nearly every Christian wonders, should I leave Jesus? Even the great theologian R.C. Sproul has wondered this. He's dead now. He stopped wondering. But in his lifetime, he wrote this. Are you ever tempted to leave? I certainly have been, many times. I don't know how many times these words of Peter have echoed through my mind. Where can I go? Should I go to Muhammad or join the jihad? I'm not going to find words of eternal life there. I won't find them with Emmanuel Kant or Jean-Paul Sartre. I won't find them in the lyrics of contemporary music. 
If I want the words of eternal life, there's only one place I can go to get them, to the one who gave his life that we might live. I find it very encouraging that the great R.C. Sproul has wondered, should I keep following Jesus? Because I've had the same thought myself. Should I keep following Jesus? And when I have those thoughts, I think to myself, I know God exists, and I go through in my mind, this is Sunday School Review for the last 20 weeks, the cosmological argument for his, his existence, teleological argument, the moral argument, I think, okay, there's really good evidence that God exists. Furthermore, the Bible contains literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, which can only be explained by the divine, because no one else but God knows the future. Furthermore, I think there's incredible evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God exists, the Bible is true, and Jesus Christ rose from the grave, where else can I go? <laughs> Nowhere. And if Christ rose from the grave, and he says that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, he must be speaking the truth because his resurrection proves that he's God. Where else can we go? Nowhere. True disciples understand the exclusivity of Jesus, and they embrace it. In addition, true disciples understand the offer of Jesus. Look at verse 68 and 69 with me again. So Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know you that you are the Holy One of God. What does Jesus offer? He offers us eternal life, which no one else and nothing else can offer. No amount of money or success or pleasure can compare to what Jesus has to offer. Eternal life. What's that, Dave? Jesus tells us later on in John 17. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, first and foremost, is relationship with the triune God. And nothing else from no one else will satisfy you like Jesus. And eternal life goes on forever and ever and ever. Like a never-ending spring that keeps bubbling up over and over and over. True disciples... Follow Jesus to get Jesus, not his gifts. Why do you follow Jesus? John Piper writes these very convicting words. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? 
That's a sobering question. One scholar says this, false disciples look at Jesus and see a genie in a bottle. He's there simply to grant their requests. True disciples come to Jesus because he is the prize, not because he dispenses prizes. Jesus offers us himself. The good news of Christianity is not primarily that all your sins can be forgiven, though that is gloriously true. Jesus came to remove all your sins as far as the east is from the west. And he came to redeem you from the power and slavery of sin. But that's not the best news. Jesus came to remove sin so that you can have relationship with God. That is the good news of the gospel. It's Jesus, relationship with him. And if you don't like that, you're not going to like heaven very much. Yes, in heaven we'll live in glorified resurrection bodies. We'll be doing all kinds of creative things for God's glory. But the best part about heaven is going to be being in the presence of God. If that doesn't appeal to you at all, you may be a false disciple. Because eternal life is first and foremost what Jesus offers you. And eternal life is Jesus Christ himself. Well, how do we get eternal life? Let's keep reading. True disciples understand the exclusivity of Jesus. True disciples understand the offer of Jesus. And true disciples understand the identity of Jesus. Look at verse 68 to 71 with me again. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. He does not say, and we have worked really, really hard to follow you to earn eternal life. No. He says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. How does one become a disciple of Jesus? We simply believe. And by the way, Jesus very gently reminds Peter in verses 70 to 71, you believe because I gave you the ability to believe. That's why you believe. So give praise, honor, and glory to me, Christ is saying. But what does Peter believe specifically that allows him to experience eternal life? What does he believe? Peter says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that title, Holy One of God, is probably from Isaiah. Isaiah often refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. Peter's probably adapting that and changing it for his purposes. But this is clearly a confession of the full deity of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, we believe that you are God and that you are holy. At a minimum, a disciple must believe that. But if someone really believes that Jesus Christ is God and that he's holy, they will spend their entire lives joyfully submitting to his will. We are not saved through our submission to the Holy One's will. But if we really believe that he's God, 
That means that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He created all things, including you. Therefore, you and I and every human being has the obligation to submit entirely to his lordship. He is the Holy One of God. He must be submitted to with every single facet of our lives. How does one become a disciple? By believing. But it's not a mere intellectual assent to facts. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is God, who would eventually suffer and die on the cross for our sins, rise from the grave victoriously, ascend to the Father, and pour out the Spirit, if we really believe that, it's going to radically transform our lives, and we're going to want to joyfully and willingly submit to Jesus. If he is God, we must trust him with every fiber of our being. If he is God, we must worship him with every fiber of our being. If he is God, we must obey him with every fiber of our being. We can't play games with Jesus. A true disciple is someone who believes and fully affirms and rejoices in the deity and the holiness of Christ, which leads to a changed life. This is not just for super-Christians, pastors, elders, deacons. No. Jesus Christ is calling everyone, every Christian, everywhere, to a lifestyle of absolute submission we often wonder to ourselves, why hasn't God done incredibly great things in and through me? I mean, I read about stuff in church history and about Christians around the world, and I'm just, just not seeing or experiencing some of the things they see or experience. Could it be that they are fully submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ and you are not? If you and I want to do great things for King Jesus that affect generations to come, we must submit every single area of our lives to him. Which raises the question, is there anything right now you're holding back from Jesus? Time, money, relationships, stuff you watch, stuff you read, stuff you think about. Christ demands total surrender. That does not describe you. All you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. I repent again and again and again. Help me follow you in a way that honors you. Christ loves to answer that prayer. So who are you? A false disciple or a true disciple? In the spring of 1912, the world stood in awe as the Titanic set out on her maiden voyage. At nearly 1,000 feet long, she was the largest ocean liner ever built. With Victorian smugness, the press proclaimed that the impossible had been done with the building of this unsinkable ship. The captain boasted, even God himself cannot sink this ship. Some 48 hours later, on a clear April night, the Titanic grazed the side of an iceberg, tearing a 300-foot-long gash in the hole. Within three hours, the unsinkable Titanic 
went to a watery grave. When the news of this tragedy reached England, frantic relatives, as you can imagine, rushed to the Liverpool offices of the Titanic to discover if their loved ones had survived. Outside the office was a single wooden board. On it were listed two columns of names. At the top of one was the word saved. Topping the other side was the word lost. No one was listed according to status, wealth, rank, gender, class, or accomplishments. Why? In that moment, all that mattered was one thing. Were they saved or were they lost? On the day of judgment, all that's going to matter is one thing. Not how much money you made. Not how successful your kids were. Not how fit you were. All that's going to matter is are you saved or lost? Said another way, were you a true disciple or were you a false disciple? Let's pray.